Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared unto them your name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them, I and them. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell, a man who was faithful in teaching the Word of God for more than 60 years throughout the Northwest. Dr. John G. Mitchell often asked a question that is still inscribed on the library wall on the campus of Multnomah University. He asked it of every class and challenged every student with it. Don't you folks ever read your Bibles? It is quite evident that he did. Dr. Mitchell once forgot his Bible in his office when he arrived to teach a graduate-level class on the Minor Prophets. Without a pause, he quoted the scripture for the day word for word from memory. Dr. Mitchell knew his Bible. Many were blessed by his Bible teaching, and today we invite you to share in those blessings by listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. The name of our study, The Unchanging Word, highlights the fact that God's Word has not changed. What God reveals in His written Word was true in the past, is still true today, and will be true tomorrow. The truth in God's Word was, is, and always will be true. God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary, life that never ends. The Unchanging Word Bible Study with Dr. John G. Mitchell concludes John chapter 17. Jesus speaks of his glory in this chapter. In verse 5, Jesus speaks of his eternal glory. And then in verses 22 through 24, Jesus speaks of his glory in two other ways. One glory is an acquired and shared glory. The other glory is a moral and beheld glory. His acquired glory is shared with his disciples. The other, his moral glory, is beheld by his disciples. Dr. Mitchell goes on to point out that this upper room discourse of John begins in chapter 13, verse 1, with love. And here, in John chapter 17, the last verse ends with love. Jesus' divine love for his own, which by contrast is distinct from the world's love for its own. Well, to conclude this 17th chapter of John, Turn with Dr. Mitchell in your Bible to John chapter 17, verse 22. Good day, friends. We welcome you again, and we rejoice in the marvelous revelation of the heart of God for his people in the 17th chapter of the Gospel through John. We're right on down through to verse 22. We've been dealing in our last lesson on the on the oneness of God's people, his great desire of the Lord that we should be one in him. And we were discussing this question that it's, this oneness is not an external unity, but an internal unity, our oneness with God, a vital relationship. We're perfect in one, Father and the Son 
and his people. This to me is a tremendous truth. It is, it is immediate union with God when a person accepts the Savior. Not only forgiveness, not only life eternal, not only relationship in the sense of becoming the children of God, but an absolute perfect, complete union with God himself and he with us. Oneness in life, in fellowship, purpose and will. I wish in some way I could give to you what's in my heart on this. As our Lord could say in John 14, 20, In that day you shall know I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. This is not a man-made affiliation, but an eternal union with God himself, and might I add, with each other. All man-made unions are going to fail. And the pattern given to us, even as the Father and the Son are one in life, purpose, and so on, so is the believer. And this is the kind of a union he's talking about, one with him. And the purpose of it all is that the world may believe. Believe what? That the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of men. That the world may know that the Father sent the Son and that the Father loves them, even as Christ loves us. You see, how is the world going to know about God the Father and the work of redemption, unless we believers in Christ communicate that to the world. And how can they believe unless they know? In other words, your job and my job is to communicate the truth to them. We are to beseech men in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God. God has made the provision. God has made his move toward man. How is man going to know it? You and I have that responsibility. So I was saying in a preceding lesson, you remember, in verse 18, Father, as you have sent me into the world, sent on a mission, and I've accomplished my mission, even so, even so, even so, I send them into the world. And because I know what the world is, I set myself apart on their behalf, that they in turn might be sanctified through the truth, that the world may know, that the world may believe. And how is it revealed? By this oneness of believers in Christ. I say, not a man-made union, not a man-made affiliation. Now, I'm not opposed to this. I'm not opposed to organizations. What I'm talking about is a oneness. You may belong to one church, local church, and I may belong to another local church. But if we both love the Savior, we're one in Christ. And the world will know something of the love and affection of God for men as they see it demonstrated in you and in me. I trust I've made myself clear on this thing. And it is this want of unity that has done immeasurable damage to the work of Christ, yes, and even to the world. It's turned men and women off from hearing the gospel. They see the inconsistencies and the lack of love among God's people. As we have it in chapter 13 of John, by this shall all men know that you have mind yourself and you have love one for the other. It's this want of unity, and unity is a footage of love. You can't separate them. It, it marks us out as not disciples of Christ. It marks us out as those who are not believing in this unity, the one with the other. Now we come to this question of glory. 
in verse 22, in verse 24. May I read those verses, please? And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now here is the great desire of the Lord to share and to behold his glory. First of all, in verse 22, there is a glory to be shared. And the purpose of making us one is that we might share in his glory, participation in the glory of Christ. I call this his acquired glory, that which he received through his complete ministry at the cross. You remember in chapter 13, chapter 14, and chapter 17, where the Lord says, The hour is come. Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. Now, it's true in verse 5, we had his eternal glory. Father, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. If ever was a verse manifesting the deity of our Savior, here it is. To be glorified with the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. I'm reminded of that verse in Proverbs 8, where you have wisdom personified. I was with him when he made the worlds. I was his daily delight as one brought up with him. Now through the cross, he has acquired another glory. I think this is what Paul has in mind in, in Romans 8, 18, when he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Or you have it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 to 18, where Paul is talking to the people of God about their afflictions when he said, these light afflictions are just for a moment. They're working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We look not at the things which are seen. We look at the things that are not seen. Things that are seen are temporal, passing. Things that are not seen are eternal. Or you take Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. You see, and in fact, I would say, even the spirit of glory is being evident in his people now. Uh, right into this, to the Corinthian church, the second book, chapter 3, verse 18, you have where our Lord said, or where Paul writes, rather, uh, Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are being changed, being changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In fact, I would say the glorification of his people starts now, the moment you're saved. What do you think all these tests and trials and sorrows are for? We get misunderstood, we do this and that and so on. God is working in us that which will bring eternal glory to him and glory to us. As Paul could say in Romans 8, 28, you remember, all these things work together for our good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. And God is working all things out after the counsel of his own will. What for? That he might be glorified, yes, but that we too might share with him 
in that wonderful glory. Marvelous thing that every believer is going to share in this glory mentioned in verse 22. Now, when we come to verse 24, I think we have a different glory. This is a glory not in which we share. It's a glory which we behold. Let me read the verse. Father, I will that all those whom thou hast given may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now here is his moral glory. By the way, this is the only time our Savior, as he walked among men, uh, said, I will, to the Father for himself. It's true, he did say, I will, to the leper, I will, be thou cleansed, and so forth and so on. But for himself, as far as I know, this is the only request he made. Father, I want something. And he says, O righteous Father. And when he's talking about us being kept, in verse 11, he says, Holy Father. There he was dealing God in his holy, righteous character, is righteous and holy and taking care of every redeemed believer. But now he says, O righteous Father, there's one thing I want for myself that every one you've given to me might behold me in my glory, in my moral glory. By the way, do you know, in Isaiah chapter 14, Satan five times said, I will, to God. You never read of our Lord ever saying to his Father, I won't, I won't, I won't. Only once did he say, I will, and that's in this verse. Satan said, I will. Be like the Most High. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. Pride, but not here. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, I read, He who was in the form of God thought it not a thing to be held onto or grasped after, but emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a slave. Do you remember that? Was found in fashion as a man humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, and so on. Father, I want something. That every one you've given to me be with me where I am. Now, most Christians know something about John 14, 3, where our Lord said, you remember, in chapter 14, 1 to 3, uh, I'm going to leave you, uh, but where I am, you're going to be. I'm going to come for you. I will return and bring you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He said, well, that's heaven. Well, I'm not worried about a place, but wherever Jesus Christ is, that's going to be heaven. Wherever he is, you have wonderful, unbroken, perfect, eternal, complete fellowship with the Savior. I tell you what a company this makes, how it makes for joy in his presence. As Psalm 16, 11, in his presence is fullness of joy. And wherever he is, wherever he is, it's going to be heaven for us. Now, the ground for the answer. Now, remember, the Lord made a request. Upon what ground did he expect to have the answer? Notice it. He expected the answer on the ground of the Father's love for him the eternal love of the Father for the Son. 
I am very sure that every believer is going to see the Lord Jesus in his moral glory because of the Father's love for the Son. The Son has made that request. He bases that request upon the Father's love. Do you remember we had that in chapter 16, uh, 26 and 27, where our Lord said, In that day you shall ask in my name, and I do not say that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me. Ah, our requests to God are based on the ground of his love for us. And the Lord takes the same ground, Father, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I want everyone who puts their trust in me to see me in my glory. And I believe he speaks there of his moral glory. I'm just as sure of gazing upon Jesus Christ in his wonderful moral glory as I am that the Father loves the Son. Have you noticed all through the chapter the wonderful assurance, the certainty of these things? And not once, not once is it based upon any man except the man Christ Jesus. Except the man Christ Jesus. Father, I've kept these men thus far, now you keep them the rest of the way. They're in the world, they're not of the world. They don't belong to the world, they belong to you. Father, you keep them from the, uh, from the evil one. And now, Father, glorify thou me, and let everyone who puts their trust in me see me in my glory. Isn't it wonderful? Oh, what a salvation this is. What a Savior we have to love us with an everlasting love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them clean through to the end with all our frailty, with all our weaknesses, with all our failures, never affects his love. My, what a Savior. What a Savior. What a love. No wonder Jesus prayed on the ground of his Father's love that you and I should behold him in his moral glory. Now let me finish the chapter. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared unto them your name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Oh, notice it, the oneness of the knowledge of the love of God for his own. Oh, righteous Father. As I said a while ago in verse 11, it calls him Holy Father to keep us. You know, the knowledge of God is restricted to his Son, and to his people. You remember in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Or in chapter 1, the world by wisdom knew not God. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Or in, in Matthew 11.25, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise, from the prudent, you reveal them unto babes. The knowledge of God can only come by revelation. The Spirit of God taking the Word of God and making it living to us. The world knows nothing of the Father. The world knows nothing of the, of the Spirit of God. Why did they crucify Christ? Because they knew not the Father. Why do they persecute God's people? Because they know not the Father. Why doesn't the world know a thing about the Spirit of God? Because they can't know Him. 
as our Lord said in John 14, 17. And the world, by the way, is not only ignorant of God, but the world cannot give you peace. Remember we had that John 14, 27, when Jesus said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. In John 16, 33, in me you'll have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. Oh, the contrast. Do you know him, my friend, if you enjoyed his peace? You can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the very last verse, and please notice that the end of the last verse of the chapter ends in love. The upper room discourse in chapter 13, verse 1, starts in love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the end of verse 26, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. I repeat it, the discourse starts and ends in his love. His love for his own. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me, the same love that the Father has for the Son, is the same love he wants to be manifested in you and in me. And the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. I say again, it's possible that every one of you, and I include myself in this, every one of us who love the Savior can experience continually not only the love of God for us and our love for him, but we can experience that same divine love for the unsaved, for the world. You remember Romans 5, 5 says, The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which has been given unto us. Which reveals to me the fact that this life in Christ is a supernatural life. I'm well aware of some of the statements I have made with respect to the fact that the man of the world uh, has turned off the gospel because of the lack of love he sees even among God's people and this lack of, of righteousness in his people, this lack of the love of the Savior in his people. No wonder the man of the world says, like you say to me, Mr. Mitchell, I just can't accept this. What can a fellow believe? I don't see much difference between these Christians and the man of the world. Oh, God, cleanse us from such a thing. May we so walk before God in the enjoyment of his fellowship that his divine love will be evident continually, not only through us to the world, but through us one with another. I don't care what, as I said a while ago, I don't care what label you have, whether it's Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist, wherever it may be, if you really genuinely love the Savior. We're one in Christ. Now, we may be we may not have the same knowledge of Christ. We may not have the same exact doctrine in Christ. Uh, this, this, this is a growth. There must be a growth in knowledge as well as in grace. But we can at least manifest love one for the other. And it's this want of love that has been crippling the testimony of the gospel to our generation. So I, I would just beg with, you, beg with you today, if you love the Savior, to manifest something of his love for men and women. And I ask you also, could I do this? If I'm talking to anybody who doesn't know the Savior, please, please, 
you look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved you enough to die for you. Whatever his people may say or do, at this point, just push it to one side. What does Christ mean to you? God sent his Son into the world that you and I might be saved. And I could say with the Apostle Paul, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you're a sinner, you can qualify for God's salvation. He didn't come to, he didn't come to save good people, religious people. He came to save sinners. And it's a faithful saying and worthy of your acceptation. Christ Jesus, God's Son, came into the world to save sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he's still waiting to save men and women who will take him as their Savior. Why don't you do that today? Write me a card and say, Today I've taken Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And I'll guarantee you forgiveness and life eternal. And the Lord bless you for his holy name's sake. I praise him, I praise him for tokens of his wondrous grace. And though I love him dearly more, someday I'll see him face to face. Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study today. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Life begins at hell.